Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's, it's time for the Bible. Yes, it's the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, pestering you again with uh, little-known facts of biblical knowledge. In fact, maybe they're especially little-known because I don't know much about them, but we'll find out presently, won't we? Here's one from Jason Quackenbush. Can you explain to me what's going on in Acts eight fourteen through 16? Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." What does Luke or Polycarp mean about the state of the Samaritans uh, baptized but not yet receiving the Holy Spirit? Is there anywhere else that there are stages of conversion mentioned like this? What does this theological view tell us about the views of Luke toward proselytization? Uh, Actually, this has created, Jason, so much uh, theological mischief, uh, though interesting, uh, that uh, I think the the focus has been missed on this. Uh, I did an article years ago called Confirmation and Charisma, where um, I point out that this passage was the basis, as far as I know, for the old Episcopalian, uh, maybe Catholic too, I don't know, but the Episcopalian view of confirmation, that one received the Holy Spirit initially uh, as late as confirmation, uh, which, of course, was sort of a puberty rite, and, uh, and as it is in Catholicism, and the uh, so they figured, well, all right, they were baptized as uh, babies, and uh, now it'd be, it'd be almost meaningless to say they received the Holy Spirit at that point. Well, what would that mean? The kids cry less or something? Uh, and so they figured, yeah, okay, this makes sense. It's probably more to it than that, but that's all I remember. Uh, but uh, I think the uh, but of course um, there are plenty of other places that uh, say or imply that the Holy Spirit comes as a result of baptism. So what's what's the deal? And uh, it seems to me here's the the proper focus. This is this passage is not about. Uh, how Christian initiation works. Uh, it's really about the uh, Luke and uh, early Catholic view that 
all of Christian expansion was overseen and authorized by the Jerusalem apostles. Now, whether that was true or not is is, uh, unknown and highly unlikely, but it's pretty clear in Acts that that's what's going on. Paul is preaching before uh, they ever hear about him in Jerusalem, or, or should I say hear about his conversion. They only know him as a persecutor. Barnabas brings him, Barnabas hears Paul's converted Christian preaching in Antioch and brings him down to Jerusalem to introduce him all around and to uh, uh, give him the stamp of approval. And um, uh, let's see, and and, uh, there is, and once he does it, then Paul is... uh, an official delegate of the Twelve. In fact, in chapter 14, I think it is, he, no, 13, he says to the church at Pisidian, the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, that um, that he tells about the resurrection of Jesus and how the witness of the Twelve to that is instrumental in preaching the gospel. He doesn't talk about his own uh, visions of the resurrected Christ. Um, the... Uh, But he is then uh, enabled to uh, sort of certify the the, the disciples at Ephesus, the disciples of John the Baptist, uh, because he's already been certified. He's a delegate, but it has to ultimately proceed from uh, the Jerusalem apostles. Uh, the the seven Hellenists uh, who serve the the Greek speaking early church even in Jerusalem are uh, appointed by the twelve, and uh, so the the agenda here seems to be the same thing. One would ordinarily assume, even Luke would, that people receive the Spirit. Uh, once they're baptized, but the the change here is that uh, since the preaching uh, to the Samaritans was the work of Philip, one of the seven, so-called Philip the deacon, not Philip the apostle, unless there's a confusion between the two. Anyway, since they were converted and baptized at his hands, uh, they couldn't receive the Spirit because you needed an apostle for that, and he wasn't one. And that's why Peter and John have to come and finish the job. It isn't really about pneumatology or conversion or initiation. It's about the authority of Jerusalem. And uh, so he tells the story in an anomalous way because of that. And uh, that's, of course, uh, traditionally people couldn't really see that because they um, thought the whole thing had to be factual and so forth. Something similar has happened in the fact that the the other part of the story about Simon Magus, Philip does miracles and outshines Simon and everybody switches over with a kind of fickleness to uh, the religion of Philip, Christianity. Uh, but then once Simon Peter gets there, he, um, I'm sorry, Peter gets there. I'm getting ahead of the game here. Peter gets there and has a miracle. Uh, uh, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, no, I'm right. Uh, Philip is the one that does greater miracles. And so everybody flocks to him. But then Simon being converted himself goes not to Philip, but to Peter, because he's seen Peter impart the Holy Spirit with visible, audible results, presumably prophecy and speaking in tongues, as in chapter 10. And he says, uh, look, uh, how much do you want uh, to teach me to do this trick, to uh, uh, impart the, the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands? And that's when he says to hell with you and your 
your money uh, you, that you thought you could buy the gift of God, in other words, the prerogative of apostles, uh, with money. And uh, this is one of those places F.C. Bauer picked up on and said, Simon Magus is really Paul. And this is another version, an invidious one of Paul seeking recognition as an apostle from Peter and the, and the, the pillars in Jerusalem. I think he's correct. Uh, and uh, so it's kind of interesting that, um, that uh, there's this double um, certification by the, the 12, a, a positive one from Peter and John on the converts except for Simon Magus, who is really Paul, and Peter has to put him in his place. Uh, so it wouldn't have been enough. Now, I think that the... Uh, the well, yeah, that's enough on that, I guess. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's really what's going on. It doesn't really mean to address that question. Uh, now, is there another place where something like this is shown? It's possible, depending on how you understand the Cornelius story... Uh, Cornelius is a pious Roman who is apparently a, a proselyte to Judaism or a pious God-fearing Gentile. He's, uh, he seems to know that there's something more, kind of like the rich young ruler did, you know, what's, what do I yet lack? And so uh, the angel sends, tells him to send some servants to go invite Simon Peter to come and speak to them and you know what happens he doesn't want to go but the Holy Spirit in a vision tells him he should so he does and all of that stubbornness is a build up to, to make his surprise all the greater at what happens when he does preach and uh, he doesn't even get to finish the sermon and, um, and uh, the Holy Spirit descends upon the household of Cornelius and they speak in tongues filled with the Holy Spirit all that stuff and uh, Peter says, well, what do you know? I, I guess God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to eternal life, too. What do you know? And then who can deny these people baptism because the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning? Well, uh, is it possible that we're to understand Cornelius and his household were already Christians? Because uh, notice Peter says to him, you know about Jesus of Nazareth, who did these good things because God was with him and freed those uh, oppressed by the devil and so forth. Is it possible they're already Christians? Uh, and uh, they don't have the Holy Spirit. I think that's a, um, not an unlikely interpretation, but of course it remains speculative. There's no way to know. The mere possibility doesn't prove it. But it's worth thinking about. Yeah, thanks, Jason. And let me see here who we got next. Uh, this is uh, Laura Del Cole Brown. I don't think we've heard from her in a while, so I'm glad to hear from her. Um, I've just had a chance to listen to your August 29th podcast in which a reader wonders what it might mean for a document to be truthful but not historical. I immediately thought of an example for one of my other areas of geekery and thought it might be helpful to your listeners. In 1979, the musicologist and Soviet defector Solomon Volkov threw the classical music world into an uproar by publishing a book called Testimony. 
This purported to be the memoirs of the composer, composer Dmitry Shostakovich, as told to Volkov in a series of conversations shortly before the composer's death in 1975. Although he had suffered two official denunciations and had various works banned, to the outside world Shostakovich had always been presented as a loyal communist working to glorify the Soviet state. But in testimony, audiences saw a very... Uh, different picture. The composer expressed his disgust at the Soviet system, discussed his own feelings of entrapment and despair, and even claimed to have secret anti-Stalinist messages in his music. <laughs> I guess you had to play him backwards, right, the records. Anyway, uh, many scholars and fellow composers, including, unsurprisingly, those still in the Soviet Union, um, uh, were quick to denounce this book as a fraud, and indeed it wasn't long before the scholar Laurel Fay uncovered credible evidence that it was at least partly a fabrication. Today, relatively few believe that it is a genuine memoir produced in the way Volkov claimed. Volkov, wasn't he an advisor to Aquaman? Uh, anyway, uh, but uh, the story doesn't end there. Since Testimony's publication, and particularly since the collapse of the USSR, many of Shostakovich's contemporaries have confirmed that he did indeed hold the views expressed in the book. Some passages in Volkov's book are almost identical to private remarks Shostakovich is known to have made to friends and family. It seems Volkov may have relied on hearsay and, quote, common knowledge, unquote, to produce the book that Shostakovich could never have dared to write himself. It seems to me that this book could be referred to as truthful but not historical, and I wonder if this is what certain scholars could mean when they refer to the Gospels in these terms. Uh, interesting. You know, uh, there have been attempts to uh, sort of maintain some semblance of Pauline authorship uh, for the pastorals. Uh, it's a tough argument to make because the, there's so many factors that imply uh, the different authorship from the other epistles, whoever wrote them, but that they're later. They have vocabulary that fits in with Luke Acts and the Apostolic Fathers, not nearly as much like the other so-called Pauline epistles. And so some people accepting that would say, well, how about this? Maybe it was based on certain fragments of letters that were all that survived, and somebody thought, well, I'd like to get this stuff out, um, but how, how am I going to do that? Uh, it's got to be readable, so uh, let me just sort of fill in the rest. Now, I did this in the pre-Nicene New Testament in a couple of cases, like the Gospel of Peter, uh, and uh, where, however, I have the what I think is the implied additional text in brackets. I'm trying to follow up some clues in the part of the narrative we have, but I clearly say, you know, this is just my guesswork. Um, but um, what? Uh, but they, the ancients wouldn't necessarily have done that, and so the theory is maybe there are bits and pieces of Paul's writings in this, and the rest they tried to make sound as much like Paul as they could. It could be. I don't think so. That seems unlikely to me. But uh, it's not impossible, and this this is what. Um, 
what you're suggesting, uh, it's kind of like that, uh, the Shostakovich uh, book, so could well be. Also, a famous religious example of this would be Abraham Varghese's um, redacted uh, work about uh, Anthony Flew's nearly deathbed conversion to theism. Uh, and because it, it looks like, if anything, he just sort of slapped together some notes from uh, from Flu, and uh, he was the actual author. But I don't think he thought he was pulling the wool over anybody's eyes because he he probably figured, well, boy, what a shame. Uh, he he probably would have written this had he lived longer, uh, or he wasn't in good enough shape mentally at the time. He was declining. Uh, let me just uh, write what he would have done. This is kind of like. Uh, when, in terms of my other areas of geekery, when August Derleth took fragments and uh, of uh, that Lovecraft had written, uh, like the the Round Tower, and made it into the Lurker at the Threshold. Of course, Derleth wrote the vast majority of it, but he tried to figure what Lovecraft might have done, and uh, people have done other similar things with with Lovecraft's uh, fragmentary notes. Robert E. Howard left some Conan stories unfinished, and so Lynn Carter and Elsprague de Camp ventured to uh, try to figure out where uh, Howard had been heading and to write it up. Uh, well, I'm glad they did. I mean, I, I'm not a, such a Howard fanatic that I want uh, uh, Howard, all Howard and nothing but Howard. Uh, I'm... Uh, also a fan of DeCamp and Carter. I just think that these are sort of collaborations. What the heck? Uh, not all that different than uh, uh, Free as a Bird and Real Love, the the two uh, John Lennon uh, tapes when he was trying to work out these songs. And uh, then Ringo, George, and Paul got together and whipped them up into new actual Beatles songs. Uh, nobody's going to deny that they're actual Beatles songs, even though it was a so-called posthumous collaboration. So, yeah, it could be. That, that's certainly an option. Uh, then Laura says, enough of my rambling and on to a question. Uh, no, that's good rambling. Uh, of the various arguments presented by apologists to support the historicity and or divinity of Jesus, which, if any, do you find the most difficult to challenge? I assume you haven't heard a truly convincing argument, because if you had, you would have changed your mind. But are there any that have come close? Well, I wouldn't go even quite that far, but I would admit, uh, Laura, that there is a there is one pretty good argument, in my opinion, on the uh, historicist side. And that it has to do with the so-called Caliphate of James. I believe uh, Adolf Harnack uh, f first suggested this, and then Ethelbert Stauffer followed up on it, and um, then um, uh, we've we've got other people like uh, the great Robert Eisenman and James Tabor and others, and several other books uh, about the role of of James the Just as the successor to Jesus. The idea being that if Jesus was thought in some fashion to be a king, uh, the king of the Jews, etc., by his followers, then once he was killed or ascended or whatever you thought happened to him, who would uh, be best to be the caretaker of the community? Well, uh, many thought it would, this was like a dynasty. It would have to be uh, James. And the fact that James is, you know, called in Galatians the brother of the Lord, and if you take that to mean, and it's 
certainly not uh, unnatural as an interpretation, though it's not the only viable one, that James was a, a blood relative of Jesus. Whether you're a Protestant and you say brother or a Catholic and you say cousin, that really wouldn't matter for this purpose, that he would have been the uh, the stand-in. And after he died, uh, I think it's Eusebius who tells us that Simeon Bar-Cleophas, another one of the brothers-slash-cousins, took over for James. Well, that begins to look like a, a dynasty. And... Um, it looks like uh, what happened with the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not surprisingly, they eventually drop that name and they call themselves the the Christian Community, I think it is. No, the, the Community of Christ. It's like there's too much to the original name. There's not enough of the newer one. But anyhow, uh, this these guys split from the mainstream Mormon church over this same issue. Who should succeed Joseph Smith, the prophet? Uh, should it be his uh, uh, the people he named apostles because he had his own group of 12? Well, that's the way the mainstream church went. Uh, or should it be his son? And uh, the, the people that did the reorganized church went with that. Uh, and um, how long they've continued with lineal descendants of Joseph Smith, I don't happen to know. Uh, but that's, that's kind of what, what happened there, right? So, or um, after the death of Elijah Muhammad, the founder of the Nation of Islam, or the Black Muslims, uh, his son, Warith Dean Muhammad, took over. And he began to change the the uh, sect to make it a bit more like mainstream Islam because because um, uh, Elijah Muhammad's was not very Islamic. Uh, in fact, he had been given the uh, the uh, ordination by this mysterious teacher named uh, Minister Farhad or Fard, depending on which spelling you prefer. I think it almost had to be Farhad, but whatever. Uh, and this guy was supposed to be Allah incarnate, which you sort of can't believe anybody is in mainstream Islam. Uh, well, I don't think Elijah Muhammad believed that he was such, uh, but uh, his son Warith Dean Muhammad began to hint that he thought he might be the second coming of Christ. But at any rate, he tried to bring it closer to mainstream normative Islam and indeed uh, began to get contributions from the king of Saudi Arabia because, uh, uh, well, close, no cigar, but close, let's say, put it that way. Uh, and uh, then Louis Farrakhan, who had been a lieutenant of uh, of Elijah Muhammad, and he's the one that ordered the hit on uh, Malcolm X, as I think he kind of admits now. Uh, and uh, he decided to break away from Bilalian Islam, as Warith Dean Muhammad called it, named after Bilal, the first known black African convert uh, to Islam. I, it, Farrakhan decided, no, no, that's not the nation of Islam that, that I joined, and so he led a schism and, cre and recreated Elijah Muhammad's style of uh, the nation of Islam. The two continue side by side. Uh, so what happened was the same sort of split. You had one group that followed his son, another that followed one of his apostles. And uh, so this is such uh, would be such a strong analogy to this theory of the caliphate of James that uh, you can well imagine. I mean, that kind of looks like um, 
that something it's it's like they weren't intentionally offering this as an argument for the historicity of Jesus because if there was a caliphate of James they simply assumed that there had been a historical Jesus but it seems to me to weigh on that side of the scale if this is what happened in early Christianity it does imply there was a historical Jesus but of course there are problems with this because it depends on other theories namely that Jesus was any historical Jesus was supposed to have been a would-be messianic king and uh, th- there's reasons to think that, there are reasons not to, and so you really have to f- first decide the issue of who was the historical Jesus before this will seem to recommend itself. So it- it's not an open and shut thing uh, by any means, but that to me is at least a, a strong argument. It- it's not hard to rebut it, though, because uh, you can always say that the relation of these of people that did claim to be uh, the uh, the heirs of Jesus and there were, that title was used in the early church that they may have been just piggybacking on an, an historicized Jesus once that was created uh, to get clout, kind of a reversal of what the early Christians did with John the Baptist. He was so important a religious figure, they tried to posthumously draft him into their movement by saying that he was the uh, front man for Jesus. And, and that's, or then, you know, Luke says he was Jesus' cousin and so on. And that seems clearly to be fictive. And this could be just as, as fictional. Boy, what a murky mess. Uh, this is why I think you're going too far, I hate to say this, to be convinced of any of these theories, including mythicism, right? Uh, these theories are to be enter- entertained uh, as different paradigms to try on for size as we read the text, but I just don't see how any uh, theory of a mythic Jesus, and there are several versions, or of a historical Jesus could ever really be uh, affirmed with any conviction. They're all just interesting possibilities. To me, the Christ myth theory is is most plausible, but that's the way I gotta put it. Uh, that's uh, I'm not saying you can demonstrate that far from it. I don't think you can demonstrate any of this stuff. You can make a case, and that's worth doing, but you really have to wind up agnostic, basically, I think. Thanks, Lara. Okay. Um, ah, my buddy, whom I've never met, Dale from Gordon Conwell. Gee, was there a Gordon Conwell, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, we'll live and die for Bloomfield High and that kind of thing. Uh Oh, man, I can't think of it, but uh, I don't know if there was one about Gordon Conwell. It might be fun to write up one. Anyway, he says, I've been operating on the model that Walter Bauer presents that unlike the picture portrayed in Acts, Peter and Paul were really on opposite sides. Peter and the Jewish church continued to observe the law while Paul rejected the law for the sake of the Gentiles. But an article I just read reminded me that Paul himself told Peter... 
if you, like a Jew, live, uh, uh, though, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Galatians 2, 14. So we have proof that just like Paul, Peter no longer observed the law. And elsewhere, Paul acknowledges that Peter was influential in the mostly Gentile church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.12. Then I realized that this might help explain something might help explain something else I've been puzzling over. Some of you may know that Robert Gundry has made a convincing case that Peter is presented as an apostate or false apostle in the Gospel of Matthew. This would make sense if the author of Matthew was a Jew who resented Peter for joining Paul. Uh, in discarding the law. You'll recall that when James came to Antioch, both Peter and Barnabas felt compelled to separate themselves from the Gentiles, Galatians 2, 12-13. This indicates to me that while James and the Jewish church may have given Paul permission to go to the Gentiles, uh, Galatians 2, 9, they never agreed that Gentiles could become Christians without converting to Judaism. Or they agreed that Gentiles didn't have to convert, but they never gave permission for Jews to live like Gentiles. So it seems that Peter may have actually sided with Paul in opposing the Jerusalem church on this important issue. In this sense, Acts may be accurate in portraying Peter and Paul as allies. Of course, there's a problem there, uh, Dale, because um, Acts pretends that they all got along, that uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary? No, uh, Peter, Paul, and James were like the three stooges, I mean the uh, three musketeers. And uh, so, you know, something funny is going on there. But I agree, uh, Paul is said by whoever wrote, uh, I think a Marcionite who's replying to the Acts version of things, um, Paul uh quote-unquote, says that before James's agents came, that Peter had no trouble eating at the same table with Gentiles, whether he ate their non-kosher food, uh, pass me another shrimp cocktail, or uh, just didn't mind uh, being near them uh, and um, while they, they ate it. Uh, almost doesn't matter. Uh, but then when, so he agreed with Paul, that was okay. But uh, once James's uh, agents came, he uh, decided, oh, well, uh, maybe I'll uh, have lunch with uh, the, the Jews today and uh, stick with the kosher m menu. And uh, Paul says, you are a hypocrite because uh, even though you're a Jew, you've been acting like a Gentile, and now you're you're uh, going with the guys that say Gentiles have to act like Jews, uh, and uh, so there's no hint there that that uh, Peter had uh, Jewish Christian views. So yeah, and in, in that regard, he is claiming that uh, Peter really agreed with him, but was a hypocrite. Now, whether that implies that, uh, like if Paul actually wrote that and said that, does that mean he's trying to debunk Peter's current claims of being a pious, Torah-observing Jew as a Christian? Saying he's not what he claims. Uh, let me tell you about this incident. Or does it mean that he was just uh, a coward and uh, caved in? Because that almost doesn't really matter. Uh, 
uh, uh, why does he even bring that up uh, unless he's arguing against James and Peter as uh, legalists, uh, Torah advocates among Christians. So I'm not sure that uh, that really uh, proves, well, anything either way. Um, uh, let's see, was there something else? Oh, yeah, about the idea. I've not read this thing by Gundry. I'm sure he's... Uh, been kicked out of any evangelical institution he was associated with if he really said this is i'll have to look it up see if it was an article or a book uh somebody sent me uh kindly sent me a, a youtube thing uh, of a lecture where he says this but i just don't have time to sit down for an hour and watch these things maybe i will eventually but i think i'll see if i can find it in written form uh this kind of reminds me of a pivotal book from, I think, 1973 by um, uh, Theodore J. Whedon, W-E-E-D-E-N. I've mentioned it often, uh, Mark Traditions in Conflict, where he says, if you bracket your, uh, you know, what you've always heard in Sunday school and church, and just look at the way Peter is portrayed in this book, uh, he comes across universally bad. Uh, he never understands anything Jesus said. He's stupid at best. But then at the end, he denies Jesus, and we never hear anything better about him. Like in Luke, there's an anticipation of a rehabilitation of Peter. In the Johannine Appendix, we see the two making up. But in Mark, nope, nothing. Uh, he's almost as bad as Judas. And uh, the way I would put that is um, that almost anybody looks pretty good next to Judas Iscariot. So it's easy not to notice how consistently bad Peter is depicted. Uh, so that's almost, it sounds like, what, uh, what Gundry is saying about Peter in Matthew. But it's more complicated than that because, as all scholars kind of uh, seem to agree, the, you know, the consensus, uh, and um, in, in this case, I, I agree with it, just like especially, uh, oh, like, uh, Born, Com, Bart, and Held, their, their fascinating book, uh, Tradition and Interpretation in Matthew, and others. It, it looks like Matthew's gospel is trying to rehabilitate Peter, as witness the you are Peter upon this rock, I will build my church, and so forth. Right? But uh, there is new negative material that seems to pop the balloon that, uh, that has been blown up to glorify Peter. And as Arlo now, N-A-W, uh, puts it in his uh, fascinating book, Peter in Matthew, it, it, I think there's no other way to explain this than that our Gospel of Matthew has uh, gone through at least two stages of post-Mark and redaction, uh, and on several issues, but uh, one of them is about Peter, and that uh, Peter gets taken down in the second redaction after he was pumped up in the first. For instance, we read that uh, Peter is able to walk on water to meet Jesus. And it actually says he walked out to Jesus. It worked. But then we suddenly hear he sank. 
And uh, Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Like, wait a second, I thought it was successful. It's obvious uh, that the point of having Peter join Jesus in the miracle is to to glorify Peter, right? Well, then they shoot him right down. Uh, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter in chapter 16, and then is, is it in 18 or 19, he gives the, the same power to the 12 as a group. What happened? Uh, Peter has lost his primacy. Um, uh, the uh, Probably the first Matthean redactor of Mark cut Jesus' uh, re- reaction to Peter's confession saying... Uh, well, yeah, well, he says, don't tell this to anybody. And then he said, okay, you might as well know uh, that uh, the Son of Man is going to have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, but he'll rise from the dead. And uh, Peter rebukes him for that. And uh, Jesus says, get out of my sight, Satan. Uh, you, you're not thinking the way God does. You're thinking the way man does. Probably the first Matthean redactor chopped that stuff and replaced it with thou art Peter and upon this rock, etc., etc. But what happens in the, when the second redactor gets his hands on it, he puts the rebuke from Mark back on. I mean, it, it sure seems like it's an, a, an addition because it's so bizarre to have Peter praised to the skies and then blasted minutes later. Could be, but uh, just kind of sounds like somebody trying to correct the text. And uh, and there's other versions of it as well, uh, other instances of it. you got to read Now's book, Peter and Matthew. But uh, Gundry, let's see what he, uh, what he says. I've had a theory uh, that I've never really developed that Matthew is actually like the Toled of Yeshu and is trying to depict Jesus as a false prophet, but I'll have to look into that more. Um, Okay, uh, B.K. Broila, a pseudonym from Georgia here, uh, with a, uh, here with a question about the Gospel of Thomas. Quote, and he took him and withdrew and spoke three sayings to him. When Thomas came back to his friends, they asked him, Now, what did Jesus say to you? Thomas said to them, If I tell you one of the sayings he spoke to me, you'll pick up rocks and stone me, and fire will come from the rocks and devour you. I reckon that as a Christian mythicist, you would say that this conversation never occurred, but assuming it did, what sort of delicious Gnostic tidbits did this author imagine that J.C. could have told old Tom? I don't see anything else in the text that would inspire a stoning of fiery devouring rocks perhaps jesus admitted to thomas that he was actually an atheist and his ministry was just a salve to humanity's desire for an afterlife and moral rules or maybe jesus told him that the rapture wouldn't occur till twelve thousand five ninety seven a.d what could it be well, let me just quote myself, as uh, my friend Don Mars used to say, so that I don't misrepresent my own views. Uh, what did he tell you? This is from the commentary, my uh, 
commentary on Thomas. It might not have been three literal words, but sayings. You've already got that. He said three things. The word could denote either of these possibilities. And there have been theories. Some suggest a parallel with Pistis Sophia, chapter 136, a famous Gnostic work, where Jesus cried out, being with the disciples who were dressed in linen clothes. He turned to the four quarters of the world and said, Iao, Iao, Iao. Its interpretation is Iota, the letter I, right? Because the the all has proceeded, uh, as in Thomas 77, where Jesus says, the all has come forth from me. Um, Alpha, because it shall return, which is kind of what we hear in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, Colossians 1, 16 and 20. Omega, because the consummation of all consummation shall take place. Uh, that's end of Pistosophia quote. Iao was also a divine name or part of one, as in the name of the Demiurge, Ialdabaoth, that is Yahweh Sabaoth. Bertolt Gertner, Marco Frenchkowski, and others suggest that Jesus uttered the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, in the form God declared it to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. Uh, three words in Hebrew. But this is drastically incompatible with the seeming Gnostic character of the rest of the saying. Gnostics, as just noted, despise the Old Testament Jehovah or Yahweh as the bungling and malicious demiurge. Jesus would scarcely be claiming Oops. identity with him. Uh, the ancient Nasene Gnostics, devout students of Thomas, hypothesized that the enigmatic three words were Kaulakau, Saulasau, and Zesar. The first denoted the primal man or heavenly Adam. The second referred to the earthly Adam. The third somehow signified, quote, the Jordan which flows upward, and, quote, further suggesting the reversal of sexual passion. This last hints at an astonishing parallel with Hindu-Buddhist tantric mysticism. Uh, just as encretism required celibacy for salvation, tantra involved ritual sexual intercourse with a partner other than one's spouse. In an exercise maintaining a state of yogic mere witness of one's own sexual arousal, the yogi allows the orgasm to bloom up to the very point of ejaculation, only to slam on the brakes at the last second, initiating a shock propelling one into a non-dual state of unitive consciousness. Tantra presupposes a non-dualist cosmology, whereby all multiplicity is an illusion. The only reality is Lord Shiva, the impersonal absolute. Mythically, they speak of him sexually uniting with his bride, Shakti, or Kali, the coupling producing the vast cosmos of Maya, in which we find ourselves. The goal of the yogi is to attain an experience of divine oneness as it was and still is behind the illusion before the primordial coupling. Uh, 
The parallel with Encratite mythology and soteriology is striking. Encratites, too, trace the woes of life back to a diversity born of the primeval coupling of Adam and Eve, and they hoped to find salvation by reversing that event in their own cases, being baptized into Christ, the Son of Man, the undivided Adam, and then eschewing sex and all the inequities and iniquities it introduced. The three words from which the Naasenes pressed out so much theology came from Isaiah 28, 9-13. They represent the nonsense words uh, in verses 11 and 13, I'm sorry, in verses 10 and 13, which the prophet attributes to the foreign conquerors to come. Whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, Kalakau, uh, precept upon precept, line upon line, Salasau, line upon line, here a little, there a little, Zesar. Uh, nay, but by men of strange lips and with an alien tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. Therefore the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken." What attracted Naasin exegetes to this peculiar text? All becomes clear with a glance at verse 9, just before the verse containing the three bits of gibberish. Whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? In this question, the Naasins recognize Jesus entrusting the secret to Thomas. The verse continues, Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast... Here the interpreter recognized the newly reborn initiate of Thomas, saying, For the young child of seven days. Um, verse 10, then, is seen to yield the three words themselves. Verse 11 announces that by men of strange lips and with an alien tongue, that is, those who know and speak the three glossolalic words themselves, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Of course, rest and repose are major terms in Thomas for the state of salvation and blessedness. So, I hope that helps. Um, yeah, okay, uh, from Nick. He says, I was wondering if you have an insight on how to interpret passages like Romans 1-3, Jesus descended from David according to the flesh, and First Clement 32-2, Christ came from Jacob according to the flesh. If Jesus was thought of as a celestial being, as Earl Doherty proposes by the writers of these letters. Um, well, 
Oh, here's another little quote from me from the pre-Nicene New Testament. The Christological fragment in Romans uh, 1, 3 through 4 may, as most think, be a quotation from an early creed. This seems anachronistic if the author is really Paul. Creed-making would seem to fit better a subsequent stage of the institutionalization of the church. It does sound creedal, but then the author is a later Paulinist not Paul. Uh, and so I'm suggesting, and, and if you notice, this uh, doesn't exactly fit with the pre-existence Christology uh, that you find elsewhere in the Pauline epistles. This sounds like adoptionism. So that's another reason to think uh, that the original epistle, uh, if it had anything to do with Paul, um, didn't contain this. Uh, so, because uh, y- you really can't tell if something that appears to be a quote is being quoted by the author or added to the original document by somebody else. Uh, with uh, First Clement, I think that's probably so late uh, that certainly presupposes the the writer believes in Jesus being a flesh and blood person descended from the from the patriarchs of Israel and all that. So. Uh, I'm with Earl in thinking that uh, Paul or whoever wouldn't have said it, but that whoever did say that wasn't uh, the earliest of Christians. Uh, Michael Evans, CPA, just like my brother Byron. I was once an evangelical Christian, but naturally had my doubts. When I would ask other Christians about contradictions in the Bible or other matters that didn't add up, I always got lame answers. However, I'd run to the local Christian bookstore and buy a book from some apologist that would subdue my doubts. With the invention of the Internet, I began to search, read, and learn both confirming and opposing points of view to the fundamentalist doctrine. Uh, I uh, I came, though, slowly to the realization that what I believed was not accurate and was so upset at one point that I had a difficult time eating for many weeks. Yes, it's the doubter's diet. Oh, sorry. I'm fine now, and I hung on as long as I did because of some wonderful experiences I had while in church. It's not unusual, uh, Michael. Uh, let's see. Uh, so finally, to my question, if Jesus was not a historical person, and it doesn't matter to me if he was or was not, why would there be so many failed predictions by Jesus in the Gospels? Uh, as an example, Matthew sixteen twenty-seven and 28. Uh, it doesn't make sense for a writer to include stuff that clearly never happened, as it would immediately put his writings into question. There are also things like the census story to get Jesus born in Bethlehem. Why not just start the story with him already there instead of making up a census that never happened? Uh, well, let me deal with the latter question first. Apparently, both Luke and Matthew had uh, as fixed coordinates in Christian tradition that Jesus was understood to be from Nazareth, 
the Nazarene was being understood that way, though originally I think it meant Jesus, the member of the Nazarene sect, but uh, that uh, at any rate, in their day, it was understood or misunderstood as implying Jesus hailed from Nazareth. Uh, Jesus, uh, which ones? Plenty of guys name that. Oh, Jesus from Nazareth. Oh, okay. Just like we hear of Judas the Galilean, stuff like that, right? Um, and the other one was, uh, geez, uh, doesn't it say in the Old Testament the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem? Again, that's wide open to different ways of reading it, but, uh, you know, apparently that's what they were thinking. And uh, Matthew, of course, quotes that. And they figured, uh, wait a minute, they also had contradictions to deal with. And so independently, Matthew and Luke came up with a way of uh, jury rigging this to get it together, to harmonize the two uh, uh, data. And uh, they were opposite ways, though. Matthew figures, well, okay, how about this? Uh, Mary and Joseph live in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in their home. But uh, the wise men tip off Herod to this unwittingly, and uh, he sends a goon squad to kill every uh, two-year-old and under in Bethlehem. Uh, and uh, the angel tells um, Mary and Joseph that that's about to happen, so they better get the heck out of there. They ought to go as far away as they can into Egypt. And he'll, the angel will give them the uh, heads up when it's safe to go back. So some years later, when Herod is dead, uh, the, the angel tells him, okay, time to go back home. But then he says, whoops, I just uh, was told that Archelaus, his son, has taken over the throne, and this guy's as bad or worse. So tell you what, why don't you go way out of his jurisdiction into Nazareth up north? He'll never find you there. And so they move to Nazareth when Jesus is uh, at least two years old, and they settle down there. They've never lived there before, but now they do. Okay, that would get us Jesus born in Bethlehem, but raised and known from childhood in Nazareth, hence called Jesus of Nazareth. Luke does it the other way around. He figures, well, Mary and Joseph must have lived in Nazareth. Uh, now, what would get them up to Bethlehem in time for Jesus to be born? Uh, well, of course, had they... I mean, you can well imagine an angel who spoke to Mary could have just said that. But uh, that... That almost sounds comical, right? And by the way, you're going to have to go up there in your ninth month of pregnancy because uh, we got a prophecy to fulfill here. He doesn't say anything like that, right? And uh, so Luke introduces this idea of a, of a of a tax census that would require uh, people to register where their ancestors had lived a thousand years before. And since uh, Bethlehem was the town of King David, Joseph has got to go there, and he brings his wife along for some unstated reason. And uh, then uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He, quote, happens to be born there, right? Uh, and then they just go back home to Nazareth. So uh, that's uh, it's a whole different thing, but he's trying to achieve the same goal. Born in Bethlehem, but known as Jesus of Nazareth. And so they they didn't feel they could just skip either one of those things, or somebody would start complaining, hey, he didn't fulfill this prophecy, and so on. Or what, you mean he wasn't from Nazareth? Well, what else might not be true that I've heard?
Okay, uh, what about the failed predictions of the parousia, the second coming? Uh, that's, uh, that's not really that difficult to explain because these, these predictions are never quite the same. This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Some standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God coming with power. Um, and then the thing with the, uh, in John 21, uh, the word went about that that disciple was not to die. Uh, we already seem to have the, the prediction being reworded because it failed, which it, which implies that, uh, again, they were kind of stuck with some of these predictions that prophets had attributed to Jesus. Right, it must have been some early Christian prophet who stood up like they used to do in Corinth and said, "Thus saith the Lord Jesus: This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened." And then uh, that you know, most of the generation was dead, uh, and uh, so they started saying, uh, "Well, uh, only some." So there's still some alive, and then well, only one. He's the only one we know of, and so who knows at what point these things were thought to have been uttered by Jesus at a particular time, and so how they gauged whether the whole generation had passed or not. But that's just more of the same confusion. But it was just that they, they were stuck with this stuff and had to try to ameliorate the difficulty. The, the classic example of that, as Consulman pointed out so eloquently in his book, The Theology of St. Luke, is the way Luke is stuck with Mark's uh, this generation will not pass away. There's some standing here will not taste death. So what does he do with it? Well, he uh, somebody is already uh, added to Mark, or he's added to the prediction before him. Uh, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the son, but only the father. Like, oh, you see what's happened there. Somebody's correcting the, the verse immediately before it. Well, I guess Luke figures that's good enough. He he can't do any more to it. But in the earlier one, there's some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God come. He lops off with power. Uh, there are about three places in the New Testament where that is used in a context to suggest the end time resurrection of the dead. Uh, he was, what is it? He he. Uh, the body is sown in weakness; it is raised in power. Uh, and uh, or the thing we we're just talking about, Romans one uh, three through four. Uh, he, but uh, he was designated son of God in power by the uh, the Holy Spirit and the resurrection from the dead. Well, he just wanted to cut that uh, that implication that it was going to be a miraculous apocalyptic coming. And that's why Luke also has statements like the kingdom of God's not coming with signs to be calculated, nor will men be able to say, well, here it is or there. Now, the kingdom of God is within you. Like, that's a very different idea, right? He's, he's trying to combat the apocalyptic thing. So they were stuck with these predictions and then just uh, uh, kept uh, changing them and correcting them. So in the future, people would read and say, oh, I didn't even notice that. It does say he doesn't know the, the day or the hour. Okay, well, I guess that's no problem. So they were already doing what these apologists that you're, you were reading uh, were doing. Well, let's see. Here's another fascinating tale. Uh, kind of long. That's okay by me. And uh, 
let's see here. I think I'll end with this because this is going to take some time. There are questions here, too. This is from Tone Chaser 77. A very good year. Right. Uh, I had a lot of fun anyway. Um, uh, back to the top. Yeah, okay, he says, I was born and raised in a fundamentalist Pentecostal church that truly was a cult in its own right. The organization's leader was a brilliant but misguided mind that integrated the typical doctrines of dispensationalism, a two-covenant theory intertwined with the doctrine of the rapture, the rise of the Antichrist, the tribulation, the salvation of Israel, the millennium, and, and lastly, the return of Christ. The church veered off this typical Pentecostal trajectory onto its own course by developing a doctrine called the Bride's Message that was based on a belief of Jesus as a bridegroom and individuals, not the church, being able to reach the highest possible goal of being the spiritual bride of Christ. Uh, let me just interrupt to say that's uh, that kind of matches Valentinian Gnostics and various Jewish and Syrian Christians from the second century, they too had a, a sacrament called the bridal chamber for the, uh, individual initiation where one saw and merged with one's highest self who was the same as the heavenly Christ. Anyway, um, back to... Uh to the question. The church drew on parallels from the Old Testament tabernacle being a picture or shadow or type of the Christ to come, and each piece of furniture representing a new step in growing up into the full stature of Jesus Christ. That's from Ephesians. The Gnostic like beliefs came from the fact that not all Christians would be in the bride, and in fact, there would be five places of eternal afterlife abode a new earth a new heaven, the lake of fire, the outer darkness, and the new city or new Jerusalem. This is beginning to sound like Mormonism, right? When one was where one was assigned was specifically dictated by how far in Christ a Christian had grown up. This was paralleled with Jesus' analogy to his disciples uh, of the harvest uh, describing 30-fold the new earth, 60-fold the new heaven, and a 100-fold the new city. Hell, or the lake of fire, was for non-believers, and outer darkness was for those who had been introduced to this Gnostic message and had rejected it. Hell was too good for them, so they had a special place in the whole a belief I now see as typical cult-like fear-mongering. This doctrine also rested on a proof text in Revelation where different believers had different garments. Some were dressed in white robes, some linen, that is, the white robes, and some raiment showing different levels of spiritual attainment. As if this wasn't enough from typical ideals, things really departed from the norm when all of this was thrown into a blender with a Kabbalah-esque background. The church taught the Hebrew alphabet and the tetragrammaton name of the Hebrew letters, Y-H-V-H, 
and encouraged people to chant this in worship services filled with the Holy Ghost, hallelujah. And like sheep, no one questioned their leader, but accepted and stood in awe of their great teacher, bestowing such truths upon them. The church still teaches Kabbalism to the flock uh, to this day with mysteries such as people having 16 minds, Sounds kind of like Gurdjieff, but more minds. Uh, each mind having its own Hebrew name. Nefesh, chooser mind. Uh, Kereb, blesser mind, etc. This, this also, by the way, sounds like Egyptian um, psychology, where you have, what, seven souls or something like that, right? This stems from the belief that sin had caused all of our minds to flip-flop into incorrect order and God could flip them back when we praised him with delight in every situation. I spent 24 years indoctrinated into into this, all the while being told that I couldn't watch movies, go to dances, befriend certain people, or even go to other churches because I would miss the rapture, etc. The fear that framed my life for every single thought that entered my mind was overwhelming. I compensated the damage in my psyche by throwing myself into music, as my mother and father had both been proficient musicians, and I quickly rose to prominence within the church as a worship leader who operated under the power and spirit of God. Hallelujah! I helped lead youth conventions, church services, etc., all the while thinking... I'm sorry, all the while drinking in everything I was told and not once ever thinking I could question it because I would end up in outer darkness one day. When I was 25, it all came to a head. The fear, the damnation, the holiness separation, the mind games. And I walked away but quickly found myself feeling empty, so I started attending another church um, after meeting and marrying the woman who is now still my wife. Word of my musical reputation quickly spread, and I was asked to be on the worship team of the new church, which was based on a charismatic but much less invasive experience than what I was used to. Playing on on the worship team soon segued into leading worship again, and this time for a much larger audience. This went on for almost five years until the church fell apart from an affair that the senior pastor had. Our next progression led us to a church that in five years of attending has since grown into a multi-campus arrangement with five to 6,000 people attending each weekend experience. Of course, I gravitated toward the worship music scene here as well. However, at this point, I had started asking questions of myself. What did I really believe? What was my relationship with God really based on? I finally felt the freedom to start exploring these questions and opened uh, and this opened a Pandora's box I was never expecting. I questioned and the answers I received didn't add up. They just seemed to lead to more questions. I began reading and studying apologetics to repress or explain away errors in the Bible. However, this didn't seem to work. Discrepancies in the Bible and inconsistencies in Scripture that I found all raised serious red flags for me. Finally, I realized I could no longer believe that every word in the Bible was written by God. I came to see from uh, from reading higher critics like yourself, Gunkel, Note, Von Rod, Ingersoll, Barker, Smith, Guthrie, Mack, etc., that many reconciliations just could not be made, in my humble opinion. 
If I truly wanted to start from ground zero without presuppositions, I had to leave God at the door. However, I found when I left him at the door, there just wasn't clear evidence that he was needed for anything at all. Any attempt by apologists to assume a God, Jesus, or other fundamental ideas that fit the framework of belief just seemed like an answer to get out of a tight spot. You bet. And why would God need uh, anyone to get him out of a tight spot? The truth should be clear enough that no attempts would even be needed. This led me to a full apostasy in which I have only come out to my immediate family and several close friends. I've lost friends and gained some, but I am at least in an honest place with myself. That is so fascinating. That took great intellectual and uh, and every other kind of courage. That's, That's great to hear. This finally brings me to a few questions that I uh, have. Question one. The story of Noah appears twice in the Old Testament. The first in Genesis 6, starting in verse 11. Uh, It says, uh, let's see. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life from under the heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every... Uh, sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive, and also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, even Fritos and Doritos, I'm oh, sorry, and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In Genesis 7, the story seems to repeat itself with some differences. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air also, male and female, to keep their kind alive upon the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean. And of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground too. And two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. 
One of the differences that stands out is that the story in chapter 6 seems to have an inordinate amount of detail as per the size of the boat, where the version in chapter 7 contains no such information. Working from the JEDPD uh, source hypothesis, is it plausible that the version of the story in chapter 7 came first and received some pushback from people which caused scribes to redact the story using more detail? One can imagine someone in antiquity hearing this story and wondering out loud, uh, how did all these animals fit on a boat? which would cause pushback for more information. Since the writers didn't want to eliminate text, maybe they merely added a different version, which would respond to that polemic. Someone listening to the story with, ext with extensive detail may think, well, with all that detail, it just has to be true. Or do you think it's more plausible if these are two distinct oral traditions passed down with different information? Yeah, actually, if you look real close like Wellhausen and the others did, you you have to unravel the story that goes through s chapter 6 through 8 and uh it's even more remarkable than dividing it as you have though though you've got the essential stuff uh it, you have the the much more detailed and prolix p version where uh god is called god or elohim and the uh more poetic straightforward version of j which has god called yahweh and uh or Jehovah, if you prefer, and uh, the, even dividing sentences very plausibly into the two sources, you can come up with two long, self-consistent stories that don't quite agree. Uh, in the the uh, length, the duration of the flood is different. The thing with the kosher and non-kosher animals, the number of pairs, and all that—they're consistent within each story, and uh, you can uh, divide it up in such a way that you got two whole stories. Apparently, nobody really cut anything, uh, and um, they're both ultimately retellings, uh, probably of the the story of. Uh, Utnapishtim's Ark, part of the Gilgamesh epic, which is much older. Uh, but um, I think you're on the right track in saying that uh, people, well, not so much that people didn't like one and the other was a, a rejoinder to it, uh, but rather very much the same point. You just had two well-known versions of this, and uh, once somebody was trying to combine J and E into a kind of an ecumenical scripture that everybody could use, uh, there was no way to, um, uh, to, to just choose one or the other. Uh, and so, and you, you couldn't just put them side by side like they had done the J and P creation accounts in chapters one through three. Uh, you could barely try to harmonize those, but this really wouldn't work because if you had one right after the other, uh, you got a real problem because at the end of each one of them, God says, okay, that's it. I'll never flood the world again. And look what happens, right? You come to the end of the first one, I'm never going to flood the earth again. And then the next verse, God decided to flood the earth. Uh, they couldn't do that, so they had to splice them into one. Question two. 
Is there a particular time when the covenant of works ended and the covenant of grace from Christ's death and resurrection started? I don't necessarily mean the doctrine of this theory, but under those who believe it, when do they say it began? Was it when Jesus was resurrected? Was it on the cross, his ministry, or maybe even his death? It must have been a specific point in time, and it seems to me the logical answer would be the resurrection. But if this is the case, how does one explain what happened to the thief on the cross? The writer of Luke says in 2339, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Hey, you're not the Christ. Uh, Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, Seems to me the implications of this verse are compounding. One, if it takes death and resurrection for the covenant of grace to begin, then how does one explain away that this thief didn't need the death and resurrection of Jesus to be saved? The verse doesn't specifically state that salvation of the thief was attained, but he at least claimed a spot in paradise. This might imply that he was saved just by admitting Jesus was innocent and asking him to remember him when he came into his kingdom. You know, remember the little people when you get to be big. If this is the case, then why does Christianity need the death and resurrection for the salvation doctrine at all? Isn't the entire goal to spend eternity with Christ or God? If the implication is correct here, then this quandary seems to toss any need of this doctrine out the window. If the thief made it without the death and resurrection of Christ, why can't everyone else, let's say if the geek... Well, you're going to hear me take a strange role for the Bible geek. Here, I think you you can sort of make some sense out of it uh, from from both dispensationalist and covenant theology. They have a lot in common, obviously. But one of the big differences, differences is that if I understand this correctly, covenant theology, which is big among, you know, Reformed and Calvinists and so forth, says that... Um, Salvation is always based on the death and resurrection of Christ and on knowledge thereof. So uh, what about the Old Testament saints, as they call them? Well, they knew it would happen. Uh, The prophets like, you know, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, which they take to be prophecies, I think, inaccurately, grossly inaccurately. I say the Old Testament Israelites knew from this that uh, Jesus would come and give his life and atonement uh, for sins and he would rise from the dead. And they really were staking their hope of salvation on that. Is is that, you know, it just and Mormons say that they make it explicit in the Book of Mormon where they're really, to use Justin's phrase, Christians before Christ. Uh, they're getting baptized. They have pre-Jesus Christian churches, the whole shebang. I think that's just unfolding what is implicit in the Reformed Covenant doctrine, uh, though it's it's absurd on the face of it. Now, what, what uh, dispensationalists say is, that's absurd on the face of it, that uh, you can't tell me that these guys all knew about... Uh, the coming of Christ. I mean, even if some prophets did, there's simply no reason to think that Israelite religion was Christian. Uh, And uh, I mean, they believed the Messiah would come, but 
dispensationalists say it's pretty obvious they were thinking of it in a kind of a worldly way, uh, conquering Davidic monarch who would restore the independence of Israel, a good thing. But uh, did they really know what Jesus was going to do? Apparently not, nor should they have. But this covenant of works, um, there were several dispensations, as you know, right? Uh, different ways in which the grace of God was administered. Uh, there was innocence, conscience, um, promise, law, etc. But in all of them, the basis for salvation was the coming death and resurrection of Christ, Uh, though these people couldn't have known it and didn't know it. But they did meet the requirement uh, of uh, faith, if you want to call it that, in their dispensation. They did what God required. And so you could call that works salvation, but the way dispensationalists understand it, in the same way they understand the epistle of James. I'll show you my faith by my works. And if I don't have any works to show, you know what that means, right? And uh, so as I understand it, they say the cat came out of the bag as of the resurrection, because that's when uh, the, the anticipated saving event actually happened. And so it could be preached then. Now, couldn't it have been preached earlier, like the Book of Mormon says? Well, yeah, but the dispensationalists figured it obviously was not. Uh, so who knows why not? But you know that seems to be what happened. We don't, don't we can't explain everything. Nobody can about anything, right? Uh, and uh, so they they would say that's that was why it was such a turning point, and that it didn't include the ministry of Jesus because, uh, like the rich young ruler said, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Does Jesus say, well, you've got to invite me into your heart as your personal Savior and Lord? Now, of course, nobody thinks he said that, right? He said, uh, well, uh, you know the commandments, right? And he names a few. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've kept those since I was a boy. And uh, he says, do I still lack something? And what does he say? You've got to believe in the atonement and the resurrection? No. He says, you've got to leave everything, give to the poor, and follow me. Uh, Now, does that mean, I mean, apparently Jesus isn't saying that uh, you got to leave everything and follow me to inherit eternal life. Uh, Rather, he's saying, well, you've already done what's required, but there is more. Your question implies you know there is something more, and there is. Here it is. He doesn't actually say that that's necessary for eternal life. And in fact, he does seem to say or imply very clearly that keeping the commandments is the recipe, is the requirement. Uh, and so dispensationalists say that uh, that Jesus' teaching, though obviously still quite applicable, uh, is really within the uh, the the uh, mosaic uh, Abrahamic framework, uh, and that it's gonna, even though it's going to change real fast, uh, and that that's why there is a kind of spiritualization of the Torah in Matthew. Right, where he says it's not good enough just to abstain from murder. If you still hate the guy, you're just afraid you're going to go to jail. No, you, you've got to uh, not harbor anger. 
It's not enough to refrain from adultery because you're afraid of what's going to happen. Like in the book of Proverbs, hubby may come home early and all that. No, uh, you, you should uh, stifle uh, adulterous lust you, so you'll never come to that point. Like, don't steal. Well, of course not. But but the thing to do is not to covet. You won't even be tempted to steal then. And, and rabbinic Judaism made the same sort of connection, even used the same examples. It is the law. He's not, it, Matthew certainly doesn't think Jesus is repealing the Torah. He says as much in uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. No, it's a question of, uh, are you going to go farther, not just the minimum requirements, but are you going to try to please the heart of God? Uh, and that's that's very clear, I think, in Matthew and in the rabbis. So you can see how um, even on this uh, even on dispensationalist uh, terms there that doesn't negate the stuff in Matthew exactly, but it does explain why he's not preaching Christian soteriology. But and what do we make of the uh, the uh, thief on the cross? Well, uh, Luke um, probably. Uh, I mean, he's got Pentecost as the time when the gospel is preached. He probably had that understanding. The guy did have the the only kind of faith in Jesus he could have that anybody could have at the moment. Jesus hadn't been telling everybody to believe in the atonement, right? Uh, and uh, uh, and he uh, and it was a righteous act, so he was safe. Now you could uh, further go into this idea. Did they believe in an intermediate state of salvation and damnation before the resurrection of the dead? Well, Luke certainly figured that, right? Uh, because all are alive unto God already. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This guy's going to heaven. Uh, Lazarus the beggar went to the embrace of Abraham. But Luke still has the resurrection in the offing. So, uh, and of course... Some and throughout Christian history, the idea of Sheol as not being the same thing as Gehenna, uh, the hell of fire, uh, that presupposed that people were were um, in a kind of a holding space, but it was really the antechamber of heaven. Uh, so I have to admit that that is a lot of speculation, very clever speculation. But I think the theology is consistent, uh, both covenant and dispensationalist, though the dispensationalists seem to me to have to read a lot less into the Old Testament. So I hope that helps. Uh, let's see. I, I find there are gross contradictions and problems. Oh, yeah, let me just add one thing to this. Your question is still a good one. Why, do, if it didn't require explicit faith in the the incarnation the atonement the resurrection for for the old testament guys to be saved why muddy the water by uh, throwing in the monkey wrench of the gospel right why couldn't you still make it like in the epistle of james who has nothing to say about the atonement and the resurrection by the way why couldn't it still be that way well some fundamentalists who don't really want to see people go to hell despite the impression they sometimes give they will invoke this in the case of uh, of people 
in the far reaches of the jungles and so forth who never hear about Christianity, they will say, well, I guess they're kind of like the Old Testament people. It's no fault of their own that they don't know about this. But even there, you got to say, well, why don't you leave well enough alone and, uh, and, and not start telling them about doctrines they've never heard of that they have to believe on pain of eternal fire? I think that uh, that's still a tough one to answer. Um, let's see. Okay, question three. A fellow apostate and I were recently discussing how friends of ours who grew up in the same church I mentioned at the beginning of the email have left their faith but have seemed to replace it with something else just as questionable. One example was a lady who left and now spends her life obsessed with Bigfoot, UFOs, and fairies. It is so predominant in her life that she won't even mow certain parts of her lawn because she believes certain flowers contain specific fairies that she doesn't want want to kill. Each of us had several stories of this type of ludicrousness. I am tempted to come to the conclusion that if certain sects of religion aren't left behind in a logical and rational manner, then the vacuum that void creates needs to be filled by something just as crazy. What saith the geek on this? Have you noticed anything similar with people? Was it Francis Schaeffer or some other apologist who said once people stop believing in God and Christianity, they believe in anything else? And uh, like the weirder, the better implied. And I, uh, I think that is true because there is a kind of a hunger for something that transcends the mundane. I have read that um, that in the 50s, the latter rain movement among Pentecostals issued in a lot of new age belief uh, and that Kirby Hensley who started the Universal Life Church was an example of that but I've never been able to find out any specific details I'm guessing there that it wasn't so much that they repudiated standard brand Pentecostalism as that it was getting stale and they felt they they needed the, a new uh, a new boost or it may be like in your old church where you have to say that at least these people had the courage of their convictions as Pentecostals believing that new revelations could come to them. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, so th that's why they dare to believe new things that they think have been revealed to them. I got to hand it to them. Most people that say they believe in revelation will in the next breath say, well, of course, not really anything important anymore. That's really in the past. Pentecostals are the last people that ought to say that, but I think they still do because they got burned when Jesus-only Pentecostalism erupted out of a camp meeting retreat they had, and uh, they thought, uh, not a Trinitarian, that's blasphemy, get the heck out of here, and from now on we're going to have creeds that you got to follow. Uh, that often happens. That's how new religions start. Um, so I think that, that often happens, and... Uh, there is this hunger, like uh, Fox Mulder's poster says, I want to believe. Uh, and I, I knew a woman that used to come to my uh, Bible classes and, and so on. She was truly hungry intellectually, but she was also obviously off her rocker. 
Uh, she used to be called Crazy Jane, though, of course, I never called her that. Uh, and uh, But she did kind of deserve it, I had, have to say. Well, she would like a, a rehearsed spiel, any chance she got, say, you know, I, I grew up a Roman Catholic, but I saw that it just didn't uh, work out. Uh, they, they couldn't give me any answers. It was false. But now I believe in channeling dolphins that can give you healing power and all this kind of stuff. It's like, wait a minute, maybe you ought to go back to Catholicism. You know, that's at least a little closer to reality. And uh, so th this does happen. And I think, uh, like you say, you, you have to, instead of just switching, o jumping over one notch into a different kind of delusion, uh, it would be better to learn to grow up and, and accept certain realities about life and the limits of knowledge and why we need to be moral, uh, to live a good life with one another, not because some heavenly voice told somebody that uh, uh, eons ago. So, fascinating stuff, Tone Chaser. I hope you'll keep writing in questions. Uh, well, okay, I'll throw in another one. Uh, Lachlan uh, Cristiante, Vampire Predator, always comes up with the good ones. My fiancé bade me, bade me, I forget, B-A-D-E, uh, me watch a video of a church play. It featured her sister playing Mary and her father playing Mary's dad. It involved Mary's dad being very stressed about her betrothed but unmarried daughter being pregnant and not believing her story, right? Joseph didn't either, right, at the beginning. Where it gets weird is he recounts a story where, as a child, the stars called to Mary to come out and play, then uses the parallel of a man with stars on his eyes as the presumed father of the unborn Jesus. This was at a First Baptist church, so I know they weren't trying to point to an astrological metaphor where Mary is Virgo, nor would they be trying to point to the Matthean um, genealogy to say that Mary's dad in this play was right about there being a human father of Jesus who wasn't Joseph, unless the person who wrote the play was being highly subversive. I want to say they're trying to draw a parallel to Revelation 12, you know, the woman clothed with the sun, but that's just a guess. I was hoping you could either tell me where they came up with this strange idea, or could at least tell me if you think they made it up out of whole cloth. Uh, well, even if there was a biblical basis to it, it is so far from any biblical text, you'd have to say they they pretty much made it up, uh, inspired by some passage. It might have been Revelation, but then again, because some Catholics will say that the woman clothed with the sun and the, the crown of stars and all that stuff standing on the moon was the Virgin Mary, but that's the wrong person, right? Uh, the... Um, the uh, the presumed father, a man with stars in his eyes, could that be a reference to God? Uh, it's I, I mean, is is that a way of trying to say the heavenly Father begat Jesus? I don't know, but other than that, I am really at a loss there. Uh, or uh, did he think it was a flying saucer pilot, as some do? That's pretty strange. Um, yeah, the stars in or on his eyes, I think, implies some sort of angel. 
In fact, I think sort of lurking underneath this thing is that um, Mary was impregnated by the angel. Uh, and uh, as in all of these virgin or uh, overage conception stories in the Bible, it all harks back to holy men who were euphemized as angels who would take the, uh, who would substitute for the, um, the, uh, geez, what's the word, the, the, the f- sterile, I guess, uh, sterile versus infertile, I guess, yeah, the sterile father and claimed that it was really a miracle from God. As in that fascinating book, um, Angels and Ministers of Grace by M.J. Fields. Fascinating. Oh, let's see. Well, okay, I guess I'm going to stop there uh, uh, for today, and I'll see you again pretty soon. I'm headed out to Portland on Wednesday for the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, where I'll be giving a Cthulhu breakfast sermonette called... um, demonic holiness for any of you in the area that want to come and be edified hallelujah but uh, hopefully i'll be doing another geek before then so i'll see you before long in any event thanks for being with us on the bible geek Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn on the firing line. So you'd better brush the dust from that old Bible. And look up to the stars when they shine. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.